Hey guys. There we go. It's so good to see you guys. I was a little nervous. I'm still a little nervous, I guess, but I was getting a little nervous. But coming down here, I was a little bit nervous. And then the instant I saw everyone, I just felt so much peace and like so much ease. Um, we, we are going to cover some tough content this weekend. Okay, you guys signed up for a retreat um, that, uh, that's focusing our attention on becoming holy. And what that means is, uh, in order to become holy, there's things that we probably have to root up in our lives. There are going to be things that you're going to have to deal with. And we should probably just acknowledge that now. Like, if you didn't get that when you were paying uh, your $65, um, then I just cut out. Yeah. Um, am I, I going to bounce back? You're going to bounce back in a second. Okay. Um, then, then you know now. You know now. This isn't going to be an easy weekend. And the, the other thing I want to point out is that, um, what? yeah, okay, uh, the other thing that you should know is that we, we only have two days together, and we've got three sessions, okay, and those sessions are going to go fast and furious. Uh, there's going to be a lot of content that, um, that we move through these slides very quickly on, and so what I did is, in advance, I posted all of the PowerPoint slides on Kaya's website. Okay, so if you go to Kaya.live right now, you'll be able to pull the PowerPoint up on your phone, and that way if the slide moves too fast for you, you can still get your notes. Does that make sense? You'll have the PowerPoint right there on your phone. So the very first message, if you go, no one's doing this, you feel really confident in your ability to take notes. I'm telling you, I'm going to move faster than you can write. Okay? No service? What's, yeah. <laughs> So, then what you do is you, you take it, and then, there you go, and then you share it with someone, so if someone can pull it up on their phone, you can share it with someone else uh, via your, what is that called? Yeah, is it, no? Airdrop. Airdrop. Airdropping. Are you familiar with this technology, Sam? Okay. Androids know nothing of this? Okay. Um, okay. So, so please have that ready, so that way if we move too quick for you at any point, uh, you are, you're, you've got all your stuff right there, and you don't have to rely on me or this PowerPoint. You can write down whatever it is that God's showing you. You know at times that there's something that God's showing you that, isn't, that is peripheral or connected to what is being taught, and you have to take a moment, and you have to pause there, and you have to take down notes, and that will hopefully give you freedom to do that without feeling like you're getting behind. There will be lots of notes, okay? so prepare yourself for that. Um, the other thing is, uh, you know, this first session is probably going to be the longest one, all right? And so if you need to go pee, I would do that now, okay? I would do that now. Um, I'm cu- am I cutting out again? I can't tell. I dropped. I got quieter. Oh, okay. Uh, I would do that now because we are going to, we are going to, look at this. The girls know there's wisdom here. The boys are like, I can hold it. No, you can't. I know you. You can't hold it. You're going to be in pain. Uh, but if you do need to get up at any point, go ahead and do that. If you need to stand up and stretch, that's not going to bother me. I'm just going to keep moving. Okay, there was one Sunday where there was a guy in the back of the room doing calisthenics the whole entire time I was preaching. I mean, I could see him the whole time. And he was just like like stretching like this, walking back and forth. Didn't bother me one bit. Okay? Uh, it was odd, but it didn't bother me. Um, okay, so... Let's start with our intro, okay? 
The name of this retreat, we've named it Finding the Holy Place. Okay? Finding the Holy Place. So let's talk about what that means. Let's start by talking about what is holiness. Okay? There's your definition. Right? Holiness. Holiness means to be set apart from the world. It means to be set apart from the world. Distinct and unique from the, from the world and the path and the plan that Satan has established since the fall of man. Okay? Distinct from that. Separated. Unique. Okay? So when we talk about a holy place, what is a holy place? Look, here we go. I'm telling you, we're moving quick. What is a holy place? Okay, well, a holy place would be any physical space, any physical space that is uniquely set apart from the sinfulness of the world and devoted to the glory of God. A physical place. All right? Now, an example of this would be uh, Moses and the burning bush. Is the first time we actually see the word holy in the word of God is when Moses encounters the angel of the Lord at the burning bush. You guys know this story? Okay. Um, you know, Moses at this point, he's been, he's been in the wilderness tending sheep 40 years now. And the Lord is calling him and separating him out from that work to do something very specific. Let's read Exodus chapter 3 verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a burning bush. Or sorry, of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. In other words, here we have a, a bush that would be, you know, kindling for fire, right? But it's not being consumed. It's, it's remaining intact, even though it's blazing, all right? Verse 5, and he said, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon uh, thou standest is holy ground. It's holy ground. In other words, what God is saying is, this space is designated as unique. And I'm going to ask that you take your shoes off, friend. Not because the shoes are important, but I want you to fully recognize and posture yourself in a way that says, I see, God, that this is a holy and unique space. And I'm not going to come into it casually. I'm going to come into it informed, ready, and prepared, postured to hear from you. Does that make sense? A holy place, a physical place. In other words, the physical space that Moses occupied was made holy because it was set apart by the presence of God. The presence of God. And an, an, an important part to understand about holy places in the Old Testament is that they're, they're only unique and they're only holy because God's presence is there. They wouldn't be holy with him from some sort of place in proximity or from a distance. They're holy because he's present there. Does that make sense? So, another example of this is the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. It's the innermost place of the tabernacle or the temple, okay, where worship takes place, where sacrifice takes place. Exodus chapter 26, verse 33 says, And thou shalt hang upon, up the veil under the, uh, the tachets. I think I said that right. I don't know interior decoration very well. I believe that word is taché. That's how the French would pronounce it. But anyway... Uh, hang up the veil under the tachets, that thou mayest bring in thither with the veil, uh, the veil, the ark of the testimony. And the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy place. Okay? And thou shalt put the mercy seat up upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. Okay, so there is a most holy place. I don't know how familiar you are with temple worship. Not the bands. Okay? But the Old Testament temple, the tabernacle. 
Okay, but the way that it was set up is that it was progressive. And the further you got in, the closer you got to God. And the further you got in, you had to be of a unique position. You had to be of the priestly order. And eventually, the most holy place was, was designated for only the high priest to enter into. In other words, it was dangerous for you to come that close to God. It was the most holy place. It's the innermost part of the temple that was set apart, and only certain of the priestly order were allowed to enter into that supernaturally divine, segregated, and unique space. It was set apart from the people. Now, when we're talking about holy places, we're talking about the Old Testament. You understand? We're talking about the Old Testament, holy places, because things change. Things change for the New Testament believer. Do you understand? It all changed in a, in a single moment. Are you guys familiar with this? Okay, when did it change? When, when did the idea of holy place change? What moment? Ah, when the veil was torn. Good. We have some theologians who are ready, LFBI students there. Luke 23, 44. Luke 23, 44. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth unto the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened. And the veil of the temple was writ in the midst. What's happening here? Jesus is on the cross and he's dying. He's in agony and he's in pain. He's in, he's in the throes of his last breath. Okay? And the sun darkens. The sky becomes pitch black. And the veil of the temple, this, this veil that we were just talking about, was writ from top to bottom as though the hands of God laid hold. You ever hold, hold on a piece of, of cloth and tear it? Right? In other words, it was torn from the top down as though God's very hands were on the veil. And he tore, them, tore it himself. And when, the, and, and when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the Holy Ghost. The veil between the inner holy area and the temple was torn in half, signifying that there would no longer be holy places. No more holy places. No more holy moments. No more holy offices. Okay? But holy people with holy hearts and holy lives living a holy mission. The game had changed. The game had changed. For the New Testament believer, holiness is an issue of whether or not God has set you free and put His Spirit inside you. That's holiness. If the Spirit of God dwells inside of you, listen to me, if you are saved, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and He has put His Spirit inside of you, those two things go hand in hand, then you are holy and you are set apart. That's a big deal. That's a big deal because for 4,000 years, human beings did not get to experience God that way. They didn't have access to God that way. They had to go to holy places with holy men. And there had to be holy moments where the Spirit came down and resided on top of a person so that they were moved and motivated in particular ways. Everything changed when Jesus decided that He would put His Spirit inside of you. Everything changed. And people had the capacity to become holy. 1 Corinthians 3.6 says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? In other words, your body becomes the temple of God's Spirit. And that makes you unique. Now, there are people here this morning who've never actually 
repented of their sin and turned towards Jesus Christ. I know that for a fact. You were invited to be here, or maybe you're not familiar with the Bible. Maybe you're not familiar with this story. Maybe you're not familiar what it means to repent of your sin. But God gives everyone access, everyone the ability to know him and to become holy if they repent of the sin of their life and they turn towards the holy God. And they turn towards the work of the cross. And they believe on Jesus Christ. And they determine that they will make him Lord of their life. That's where salvation happens. And that's where your life has the capacity to be holy. So you might be saying, okay, check. I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I am saved. I, I accepted Christ as my Savior. I am holy. So what, why am I here at the retreat then? I, I paid 65 bucks. What did I, what's that money go to? Because I'm, I'm already holy. I'm good. I don't need to find the holy place. You just got done saying holy places. Right? <laughs> Only holy people, right? Okay, you said that. Holiness, check, I'm holy. Can we go play Gaga Ball now? <laughs> okay. See, there's a problem. There's a problem. There's a serious problem. See, there's a difference between being holy and living holy. There's a difference between being set apart and acting as though you're set apart. There's a difference between being made perfect in the eyes of God the Father and actually living a perfect and mature life. There's a difference. And the two can be mutually exclusive. You can accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. His Spirit can reside inside of you. And you can live... Like a filthy monster. You can. All of us know what that's like. I mean, it's not really any different than the fact that God resided in the temple of Jerusalem. And yet people, his workers, his officers, his people, were acting filthy even on the steps of the temple. You know that, right? People were like, fornic- it points in scripture, people were like having sex on the, the steps of the, of the temple. It's vile. Vile, vile things happening on the doorstep of the holy place. And the same thing can happen in your life. You have the capacity to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and to be set apart and still choose to, let's be honest, have pet sins, right? Things that you you coddle. Things that you won't let go of. Things that you hold on to. Cultural inclinations that came from your lost person and they still exist with you and they're like a, a dark shadow that follows you around. Sins that are oppressive. See, many of us in this room are holy because we accepted Jesus Christ, but many of us don't live holy lives. We don't exemplify Christ-likeness. Now here's the deal. All of us struggle. All of us struggle with living according to who God made us to be and there is no shame And acknowledging that it's hard to live a holy life. There's no problem with that. Paul does it. Romans 7.13. See, Paul related to the struggle. He related to cycles of sin. When I say cycles of sin in your heart, does that resonate with you? You think about it. What are the cycles of sin that you struggle with? The things that you keep stepping in over and over again. 
What are those things? Romans 7.13 was, Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin, by the commandment, might have uh, become exceeding, uh, exceeding sinful. The th- you know, one of the things about being saved and set apart is that when you do sin, it grieves you more than it did when you were lost. And you might have had conviction when you're, you were lost. And there might have been moments where you're like, man, this is wrong and I know it. But it's different when you're saved. You know what I'm talking about? Especially those of you who got saved when you were adults, like maybe teenagers or adults. You recognize that there was a greater sense of conviction that came with having God inside of you than there was before you got saved. You not acknowledge that? It can be painful to know that you keep sinning. It can be painful to know that you're not living holy. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I, I, would, I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Okay, I deserve a round of applause for being able to read that. I think I messed up once. Just one time. You guys relate to that? You relate to this idea that the, the, the will is inside of you because, because you've been set apart. The spirit inside of you, okay, has formed your conscience to his own. And there's a desire that exists inside of you, in your soul, in your spirit, that drives you towards living out the will of God. But yet, yet, there's sin that still abides in your flesh. Because it has not yet been redeemed. Though your soul and your spirit have been. Your flesh has not yet been redeemed. And you carry sin. And it affects you. And it hurts you. And it feels exceeding sinful. It's painful. And the worst part is for so many of us. We continue to do the same sins over and over again. We refer to those as besetting sins. Sins that we can't seem to shake. And many of us have sins that seem to lurk behind us like shadows and they imprison us that we feel like we could, we could never f- fulfill a Christian life. We can't, I just can't do it. I can't live the way I want to live. I can't get there because this thing that keeps following me around. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, that sounds there. This is me being hot. This is not, I'm not, this is like an illustration. <laughs> you thought I was doing like an illustration. Yeah, this is, this is the besetting sins. Oh. Woo. There you go. It's that easy. No, I'm just hot. So listen to me. You guys know the sins that you struggle with. And these, these sins manifest themselves in different ways for different people. People have different predispositions for, for different sins. Some of it was nurtured into you. Some of it might come natural. See, these sins, they manifest themselves differently. Drug and alcohol abuse. 
Some of you still struggle with that. You know you do. Sexual encounters, fornication, pornographic addictions, lust, masturbation, gossip, backbiting, bad tempers, abuses of entertainment, obsessively watching movies and playing video games, overeating, undereating, purging, materialism, uncontrolled spending habits, deceitful behaviors, lying, cheating, sins of all sort. And you know which ones that you own. You know which ones you have a hard time letting go of. See, the danger is that many of us have begun to characterize ourselves by our sin. And that is the danger. That is the danger. See, we begin to identify ourselves by these struggles. I am the person that can't stop masturbating. I am the person who always needs to have a drink. I am a person who is obsessed with how I look. And you begin to characterize yourself and identify yourself by these things. Many of us live in cycles of defeat, frustration, and depression because we can't seem to conquer our sin. So what do we do? See, we know that holiness is a state of being. We know that holiness is the spirit living inside of us. If we are saved, we are holy, and we are accepted of God. He loves us, and we have his favor. We know that. But holiness is also living in such a way that your lifestyle is set apart from the lost world. See, holiness is not just who you are, but it's what you do. It's your identity. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. See, your bodies and your service should be set aside to live holy. That's the power of that verse. The idea is that you live as a sacrifice before God, dead towards everything but Him, so that our service and our lifestyle and our works can also be holy and set apart the same way our soul is. But how do we get to a place of pure and holy living? How can we get to a place where we are living the reality of our salvation? Not just holy inside, but holy through and through. See, the next three messages are going to use physical pictures from the Old Testament. See, we're going to go back to places in Scripture that function for us as allusions to spiritual truths. You understand? So for us as New Testament believers, we know that the Old Testament and the lives of the Old Testament believers and those old holy places are for us a picture of how we can live holy. So each message, each message will be a, a picture of our spiritual realities. So today, this, this morning's message, will be the wrong places. I, I have the privilege of preaching the hardest message, in my opinion. When I was, talk, was talking to Brian and Eric, they're like, we're going to let you do the mean one. Okay? 
So what does that mean? The wrong places. Or, or listen, or where not to be. Where not to be. Basically is what that means. Where not to be, both physically and spiritually. All right? Brian has the privilege of preaching the right places. Okay? The right places. Which again, where to be, both physically, posturing of your life and posturing of your heart. Right? And then Eric will be preaching on the final place. What to strive for. What we should be striving for in our lives. And this will show us how to posture our lives so that Jesus is at the forefront of our minds and our hearts and keeps sin at bay. This is how this works. I'm sorry to tell you that your whole life you're going to struggle with sin. Okay, but here's the point. Is that holy living means that Christ is at the forefront of your mind and your heart so that even when you sin, you will not be swallowed by it and then you can move beyond it and live a victorious life. It doesn't have to own you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this time and I thank you for this people. Uh, Lord, I, I know that for everyone here, they, they didn't drive an hour out into the middle of nowhere. I literally have no idea where I'm at, Lord. Uh, they didn't drive out here for no reason. They're here because they want to hear from you, whether they know it or not. In their heart of hearts, they desire to know you and to know you more. And so, God, I, I pray that this time would be set apart. That it would be a time of holiness, of glorifying your name. And, God, a time of resetting our perspectives, our priorities. Lord, that our motives would change. Lord, we'd see you for who you are. And in light of your character, Lord, we would conform our lives to you. Lord, help us to avoid the wrong places, both physically and spiritually. Avoid us, uh, help us to avoid from going into places that we should not be. Lord, give us strength to obey you and to live according to your Son, Jesus Christ, and the example that he set for us. We want our minds to be Christ-like, conformed, conformed to his image. Help us. Help us to live holy lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are going to transport in time to another place. Okay, you ready? We're going to the plain. The plain. Genesis chapter 11. The plain of Shinar. For some of you, that sounds like something out of a Star Trek movie. Yeah. 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 Captain Kirk. There's a shout out for you. Uh, So the first place we're going to transport to in order to study holiness is going to be the plain of Shinar. Okay? Or this is the place where the Tower of Babel was built. Alright? And it's where the people are working diligently to build this tower. It's their secret getaway. Okay? And it's a gateway to power, prosperity, and eternal happiness in their mind. They're creating heaven on earth. Okay? Are you ready for that? Let's begin. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. And the whole earth was one language and one speech. The whole earth. So, we're we're not really that far removed from Adam and Eve. 
okay? A thousand years or so. I don't know. I didn't look at the exact chronology, but it's, it's just past. I mean, Adam is dead, okay? There's been a few generations that have continued past him. And here we are. Uh, there's a man at the helm, okay? His name is Nimrod. Everyone's, so if you're familiar with the word Nimrod, and how, you know where that comes from, okay? This man is a man of belligerence and power and pride, okay? And he leads the people, okay? He leads the people to find a place to settle. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, they found the whole world is together. They found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go, go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name, lest, be, uh, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So the very first thing we need to talk about is this idea of the places that we settle. The places that we settle. Okay. So they found a plain in the land of Shinar. In scripture, a plain is a wide open space. You guys, there's lots of, we pass through a lot of plains on the way to get here. Okay? It's a wide open space full of vegetation and fresh air. It's a place ripe for settlement. Yeah? Oregon Trail. Yeah? Uh, like if you've ever seen any pioneer movie or cowboy movie, yeah? You're familiar with this place. The homestead. You know? <laughs> I, you, you, there's so much you guys don't know about me. I love westerns. Amen. I love them. I have a huge collection of westerns on DVD and Blu-ray. If you're interested in westerns, let me know. I'll share my catalog with you. I'd love to do that. I'd love to talk western with you sometime. I also really love country music as a byproduct. Not Amen. contemporary country music. Amen. Okay. For those of you, I don't get down with uh, uh, Florida Georgia Line. Okay, that's trash. Yeah, truth. Trash. But like those of you who've had me as a teacher know that I like to occasionally when I when I don't think I'm going to get, you know, berated for it, I play old country music in class and. It's got a fond place in my heart. But anyway, so you know, cowboys, they settle in places like this, right? For these early settlers, the first community of man, if you will, okay? The whole world is together, and they're looking for a place to settle down. They chose the plain of Shinar because it was a good place to rest, to start a family, a profession, a community. The plain of Shinar, the word Shinar, means country of two rivers. Do you guys remember there was another place of two rivers? What was that place? Eden. Okay, Eden was a place of two rivers. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to replicate that experience. For these young settlers, they would have known and they would have heard of Eden, and this was their opportunity to get back to a place of comfort. See, see here is the spiritual inspiration for us, New Testament Christians, there is danger in settling. There is danger in settling. Key point number one. Holiness, you want to be holy? Holiness is refusing to settle for the world's best offer. Holiness is, is refusing to settle for the world's best offer. See, one of the greatest temptations of humanity is that we would so, that we would so often see 
that the world is offering us something that looks good on the outside. Okay? It looks great. It looks comfortable. It looks convenient. And I will choose that thing. And I will settle my life and my heart on that thing. See, we, we surrender so easily, don't we? So easily. In pursuit of the good job. In pursuit, pursuit of the good house. The good things. The good wife. The good husband. And so oftentimes we settle, not for, the, for God's best, but the world's best. See, we, we would much rather settle for the world's best than to recognize that God has a better way for us. And it, here, here's the God's honest truth. Some of you in this room this morning are living a life that has areas in your mind that are compartmentalized. Areas of your life where you say, God, this is what I've wanted to do for the longest now. And you don't, have, you don't get access to this because this is the thing that I've settled. This is the area of my life that I've got figured out, I've got planned, I've, I know what I'm doing. And, I've, this is, and it's your place of comfort. It's your, it's your place of, of, of where you are going to settle your mind. See, Noah understood what it was like to not settle. See, the whole world, like if we're talking about early man, the whole world was bent towards settling for what was the most comfortable and best thing for them. And there was one man in the whole world who chose not to do the convenient thing, to not settle. And it spared his life. I'm sorry, the Tower of Babel, this story about the plan of Shinar, there is not a man, there is not a single person who stands out the way Noah did. See, Abraham knew that it was better for him not to settle. It was better for him to be a rambling man the rest of his life, to be a wanderer on the earth, than to settle for the gods of his forefathers. He knew that it was better to be a stranger everywhere he went than to settle in one place and reside there. He knew that. But see, many of us have settled for unholy living. And the thing that's unholy in our life, we've actually just grown comfortable with it. You know, the thing that I was talking about, that sin, that besetting sin, that thing you struggle with, fill in the blank, whatever it might be, that thing that you hold on to, you've actually grown comfortable. You've tamped it down. You've tamped it down so that it's manageable. So it doesn't come up against you. You've lowered your threshold for conviction. And you've begun to settle. You settled for unholy living. See, listen to me. If we are to live holy, then there must be a sense of determination in our heart and our mind that the way of the world will not be sufficient for me. It will not be sufficient. That thing I've tamped down, it's not okay. It does not get to reside with me. It does not get to live with me. It does not get to dwell with me. I cannot settle for the world's best. So those are the places of settlement. Let's look at the people that surround us. Who do you surround yourself with? Genesis chapter 11, 1. And the whole earth was with one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. This people was a unified and single-minded group of people. The whole world communicated with one language. Can you imagine? We're almost there, by the way. We've almost gotten back to that place. We have almost figured out how to bridge every language. Technology has done this for us. We're getting back to Babel. 
They're, they're together, one single language. There was nothing to impede them from industrious and efficient living. Now let me explain something else to you. People had been living for, like, a, a lifespan was almost a thousand years. 600, 700, 800 years. Now, listen to me. If I lived to be 800 years old, I would go to Harvard. I would go to Yale. I would master all of these instruments. Wouldn't you? You'd have the time and the space to do it, wouldn't you? I would become an engineer. I would become... I, I, listen to me. Imagine a society of people who have hundreds of years to master their crafts. Now you tell me what technology was like. We don't have much information about the people that lived during this time, but it would not be a crazy hypothesis to say that these people were technologically as advanced as we are today, or maybe more so. They literally, literally had an opportunity to make their own way to heaven. They were an industrious people. They could do and be whatever they set their mind to. In fact, that's exactly what God said. Genesis chapter 11, 5 says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one. And they, they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their languages, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. We know that teamwork works, don't we? Teamwork works. Have you guys ever seen the movie Mighty Ducks? Yeah, yeah good. I wasn't sure if this illustration was going to work. Mighty Ducks is a brilliant film. I believe it won like seven Academy Awards. Yeah? Actually, probably I only got a nomination. It's a Disney movie. Those don't usually do real well in the box office. Um, but listen to me. Okay, Mighty Ducks. I think they made three of these movies. Okay, here's the, here's the premise of the film. A bunch of, like, loser kids, all right, uh, who ha have, a, like, a, a peripheral uh, uh, interest in hockey, okay? They kind of like hockey, all right? They, they, they're a ragtag group of individuals, all right? Come together around Coach Emilio Estevez, and he inspires them. To prefer one another over themselves. To live a life of teamwork. And then they win the state hockey title. It's a great film. I, yeah, there we go. Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a D2. Uh, not D2. It's an MD2. I'm getting my D2s mixed up. MD2. Mighty Ducks 2. Uh, I believe that's where they, they, do the they do the flying V. Yeah, the flying V. That was so impressive. <laughs> Brian, you remember this? Uh, my mind goes to Angels in the Outfield. There's, but there's not a lot of teamwork in there. That's about one individual. Yeah, that doesn't help my illustration. <laughs> Rookie of the Year, Angels of the Outfield. Angels in the Outfield, those movies, no, those, those don't work. Mighty Ducks is about teamwork. <laughs> And you can, whatever you set your mind to, you can achieve. Well, that's what's happening here in the plain of Shinar. According to God, this early people had the opportunity to achieve whatever they set out to do, including finding a way 
to circumvent God in order to get to heaven. Believe it or not. Now, this is the wrong group of people. As industrious as they are, and as much teamwork as they have, this is the wrong group of people to be hanging around. See, many of us have long established worldly companionships. People who have had influence over our lives for years. Friends that we've had since our childhood. People that know everything about us. And we've knit ourselves to them. But these people don't share our values. They don't share our morals. They don't share our beliefs. And we have to be incredibly careful about what kind of company that we keep if we're going to be holy. If we're going to choose to be holy, we've got to, even as good as it seems to have those friends from your childhood, and no one's telling you you need to throw those people away. No one's saying that. But we're talking about intimacy and companionship. Who are your companions? What kind of company do you keep? Who you hang out with matters. What kind of person you marry matters. I'm going to speak especially to the women in this room. Sorry, guys. Do not settle. Do not settle. If you want to live a holy life, marry a holy man. Don't marry a good man. Marry a right man. It would better, it'd be better for you to remain single and holy your entire life, serving the Lord, than to desire or settle for companionship that forces you to live a good life. The life of a pew sitter. He loves God. He's saved. I'm telling you, that's a real low standard. For holiness. Do not settle. Don't settle for your companion in life, in marriage. Do not settle with your friends. Be careful with who you give your heart to. Because if whoever you give your heart to, your life to, your body to, your mind to, listen to me. They will impact you and they will affect your holiness. Psalm 1.1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth he meditate day and night. That's what it looks like to be holy, to meditate on God's word day and night. Holiness, key point number two, holiness is refusing to keep bad company. You want to be holy? Then you might need to give up some friends. You want to be holy? Then you might need to break up with that guy or that gal. There's decisions to be made if you're going to be holy. If we are going to live holy lives then we are going to need to refuse to have intimate relationships with people who have worldly ambitions. Because these are people that pull us down. I'm not getting a whole lot of amens. I knew this was going to be hard. I mean, look, this, this runs the gamut here. I'm telling you, don't have scumbag friends. But I'm also saying, don't settle for just good friends. Do you know what we have in one another? 
The thing that I, I never understood about family, you know, I, I, I love my mom, and I love my immediate family especially, but there was always conflict, and there was always struggle. And the thing that I learned about family when I became a believer and started attending a church like this, the thing I realized that good family strives on sacrifice. It strives on sacrifice for one another. And the reason that we have the capacity to live holy is because we are a family of people who have learned to sacrifice for one another for the sake of righteousness. For the sake of righteousness. Not to be complicit in people's sin, but to hold one another accountable to great things. To living for God. Next, personal motivations. Let's look at the motivations of the people in the plain of Shinar. Let's look at their motivations and then let's compare our motivations to theirs. Can we do that? First of all, it says, And they said, Go to, let us build a city. Let us build a city. It is common to see people striving for well-being, isn't it? Well-being. Christianity is full of it. Christianity is full of well-being false prophets. Happiness, health, and prosperity. So in a world where Joel Osteen exists, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm going to say it. It's a very, very sad one for Christianity. See, he calls himself a Christian, and he writes a book called Your Best Life Now. Your Best Life Now is a recipe for the Tower of Babel. Let me, let me quote some things for you. He says, anyone who can create by faith and words, anyone can create by, by faith and words the dreams he desires. He says, if you develop an image of success, health, abundance, joy, peace, happiness, nothing on earth will be able to hold, you, uh, to hold those things from you. Name it and claim it. He says, all of us were born for earthly greatness. That's Nimrod. That's Nimrod speaking. If this way, if this way of thinking, or sorry, it's, it's, it is this way of thinking that eliminates the need for God and God's will. If I can imagine my dreams and my aspirations and I can imagine prosperous living, and I can focus my attention in faith, vague, empty, pantheistic, vain faith, abstract beliefism, then I can have all my earthly desires, plain or shine on. See, they were, they were motivated by personal prosperity. Something God has never promised us. Wealth, health, and success are all motivations of the world, not of God's people. You know why? Because God's people know they have a reward somewhere else. And there's nothing here that can satisfy me. Philippians 3.8 says, Yea, doubtless, and, and I count all things but loss. This is Paul speaking, who really had all things, by the way. He was doing real well for himself until he met Christ on that road to Damascus. Things were looking good for him. Things were looking up. He had a plan. He was working the plan. Okay? But that, that, plan, that plan was vain. And he knows that. Yea, doubtless, I count 
all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. The word dung is the Bible's S word. Okay? I mean, he's literally saying that everything in his life is that. Anything that's not God is that. Prosperity is not on his mind. Their motivation was power. They wanted a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. In other words, they wanted the benefits and the blessings of God, but without God. They wanted access to heaven, but they wanted it on their terms. They wanted power. They wanted power that superseded and circumvented God. See, they could have built anything, couldn't they have? They could have built anything. Their ingenuity could have achieved so many things of spiritual value, but their selfishness and pride led them to build a super highway to heaven. Hey, you know what we should do? I mean, now that we've found the Garden of Eden, let's take heaven too. Let's just take it. I think we can do it. I think it's possible. Let's draw up the plans. Let's scheme. See, they wanted to prove that they were greater than God himself. And many of us in this room are doing the same thing with our lives. You wouldn't say it in those words. But you want power. You want authority. You want the things of God without God. His convictions are really inconvenient, by the way. They're really inconvenient. They hurt. They're painful. Man, living for God is suffering for God. I don't really want that. You know, I like some things about God. I like that heaven part. I like that grace part a lot. I like some things about God. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to establish my own doctrines and my own ways. I'm going to do things according to my will. I don't care what the pastor says from God's word. I'm going to find my own way. Isaiah 14, 12 says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? This is God addressing Satan. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. And I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. See, ultimately their motives weren't reasonable at all. Their motives were conspiracy and rebellion against God. So this leads us to the key point. Holiness is refusing selfish motivations. Holiness is refusing selfish motivations. See, their motivation is pride, isn't it? They want to make a name for themselves. It says, and let us make us a name. See, they desired a reputation in the world, a reputation among the celestial even. 
They desire to be known for their ingenuity and their ability to go around God. Now listen to me. Ministry principle. Submit. Submit. You don't need to get there your way, wherever there might be. You don't need to get there your way. You will foul it up. Let go. Surrender. Psalm 49.10 says, For he seeth that wise men die. Likewise, the fool and the brutish person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever. And the, the dwelling places to all generations, they call their lands after their own names. In other words, people like to establish a legacy. People like to establish a name. They like to have wealth that they could pass on. They like to have letters after their name. They like people to say their name. They like people to say their name from high places. Nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. This is their way. Is their folly. Yet their posterity, in other words, the name they leave behind, posterity meaning the thing you leave behind, approve their sayings. So, so what they're doing is they're justifying their wicked actions of trying to leave a legacy. Guys, we have to let go of our pride. Because in our pride is unholy living. Okay, so... so What about you? Are you seeking prosperity? Are you seeking power? Are you, are, is your life full of pride? See, our, our motivation should be to honor God only. John 5, verse 43. Jesus is speaking. He says, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. How can you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? You hear what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that we would prefer the honor of men to the honor of God. We would prefer that. That is settling. See, our motivation should be to press toward the calling of Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not as though I had already attained... Either we're already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, so let's wrap up the plan of Shinar like this. You ready? Listen to me. If we are going to live holy lives, then we are going to need the right motivations. We must be resolved to honor and serve God. Any, any ulterior motive has the potential to interfere with that. Even the good ones. Even the good ones. 
What are the other motives that you carry around? leadership see what what do we learn from the plane of Shinar first of all we learned don't settle for worldly living many of you have that's why you live unholy lives you've settled for worldly living you have to repent of that today next don't surround yourself with the wicked some of you have unholy relationships Friends with people, okay? Maybe even sexual relationships with people that have forced you into a cycle of sin. We cannot surround ourselves with the wicked. And then don't strive for personal ambitions. I mean, I know that everything has, everyone has always ever told you, every teacher, every high school counselor, your parents, they've all told you, Whatever you set your mind to, right? But I'm telling you, personal ambition gets in the way of God's ambitions. And so if we have God's ambitions, the personal stuff will work itself out. He promises that. You know, God loves the lily of the valley. He takes care of it. He helps it to prosper. The birds of the air, He takes care of all of them. Your needs will be taken care of. Don't worry about that. Thriving in the Lord and holy living looks like God's ambitions over our own. That's what it looks like. Next, let's, let's travel. You ready? <laughs> Through the portals of time. We are going to visit the high places. The high places. This is, this is the place of strange gods. Now, first of all, let's talk about the high place versus the high places. In Scripture, when you see the word high place, singular, okay, it is generally, generally, not always, but most of the time, referring to the place where the saints would go to worship. Okay? The Old Testament saints would go to the high place to worship the God of the Bible, the Jewish God. The God of the nation of Israel. They would go to the high place to worship. See, the high place is a place reserved for meeting God. Cool? Make sense? Now, the high places, plural, are generally speaking, generally speaking, referring to the places where the pantheon of gods are worshipped. In other words, the high place is reserved for God, but the instant it becomes plural, places, then you have a problem. Because in that moment, you've undermined the authority of God's worship. Okay? See, God doesn't like high places. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like to share. Okay? I don't know if you know that about God. He doesn't like to share. I mean, the only, one he's, the only he, people he's willing to share with are us, and it's his blessings and inheritance. But he doesn't like to share, especially with those other gods. He actually hates them. He hates them. Leviticus 26.30 says, And I will destroy your high places. I mean, I. that's pretty straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> I will destroy your high places, 
and cut down your images and cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols and my soul shall abhor you. Some dramatic language there, Lord. I hear you loud and clear. I do not want my carcass, dead carcass, thrown on the carcasses of the idols, and nor do I want you to abhor me, uh, abhor me eternally. I don't. That does not sound good. So let's use a story. The story of Solomon. Okay, many of you know that when King David had established Israel, and it was beginning to prosper, that he sought the Lord concerning building a temple. You remember this story? He says, Lord, we've achieved a lot. And I'm so thankful. But I look around and I recognize that all of the land that we've conquered and all of the, the wicked Gentile nations we've put down, we have not yet built, built you a place of worship. God, I would really like to build you a temple. And God says, well, your hands are kind of dirty. So, actually, and this is the, this is the brilliance behind it, okay? God is so smart. <coughs> God's plan is to let Solomon do that. His son, David's son. And you know why? Because God, listen to me, this is a principle for you. God wants the work to pass on from generation to generation. In other words, what he's saying is leave some for someone else, please. As a leader, do you do that? Leaders, growing leaders, do you delegate? Do you leave some of the blessing of the work for other people? Keep that in mind. So David wants to build the temple. God says no, because he has a plan to give that responsibility to his son Solomon. So when Solomon came into power, he continued to strengthen the walls of Jerusalem, but he too noticed that people were sacrificing uh, to God all over. Okay? Um, There was no unity in the worship. In other words, people, Jewish people, followers of God, were worshiping in high places everywhere. Now, it wasn't two pagan gods yet. Okay, But they were, their worship was disunified. They were like just going and finding a place and they would worship there. And maybe the people in that village or that community would worship in that place. And then that community would worship over there. And they, would kind of, they were kind of broken up and disunified in their worship. And at the time, even Solomon was forced to make sacrifice in Gibeon, which was a holy city, but it was an alternative at best. It was just an alternative to what should have been. Listen, 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to be in Kings. Okay, 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 4 says, And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the high place. He made a thousand burnt offerings in Gibeon. A thousand. All right? There's a lot of wealth and prosperity happening there. God's blessing them. All right? But it came by God, didn't it? Not by their own hands. So he makes a thousand burnt offerings, but he realizes something ain't right. So he goes to God. All right, and he asked God, would you have me to build this temple? And God says, yes, let's do it. And in Solomon's reign, he builds a temple in Jerusalem to ensure that people would unify the places of worship and honor God rightly. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Chapter 5. Thou knowest how that David my father could not build an house under the name of the Lord his God for the wars which were about him on every side until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God hath given me rest on every side so that there is neither adversary adversary nor evil occurrence. 
And behold, I purpose to build an house unto the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spake unto David my father, saying, Thy son, whom will I will set upon thy throne, uh, he shall build an house unto my name. Now it took Solomon 20 years to build this temple. And they're hard at work. And you can see that story in the next few chapters. And when they were finished, they brought in the Ark of the Covenant. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 30, uh, 55. You guys got to stay with me here. There's some reading. This is where I would usually shut down for a moment. Okay, when there's a lot of reading. I pretend like I'm taking it in, and I'm not really. Write down the verses, write down the references, and let's keep moving. You ready? So they bring the Ark in. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told nor numbered for multitude. They lost track of how many animals they were sacrificing. And, and God liked that. I don't know if, think about that. God liked it. All that blood, he loved it. He's like, yeah. Blood. And the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto his place, into the oracle of the house, to the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubims. So God was honored. And he entered into the temple. Verse 10, jump down to verse 10. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because, because of the cloud. Isn't that powerful? They couldn't even stand to be in there. God's space, look, God's cloud consumed so much of the space that there was no longer room for their flesh to dwell in the, in the space. Hmm. Can't be in here. Okay? This is too much. Then spake Solomon, the Lord, uh, the Lord said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. Got to be thick. I have surely built thee a house to dwell in, a settled place for thee to abide in forever. And the king turned his face about and blessed all the congregation of Israel. And all the congregation of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which spake with his mouth unto David my father, and hath, and hath with his hand fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought forth my people, Israel, out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel to build a house, that my name might be therein, but I chose David to be over my people. Okay, so, then Solomon, he blesses the temple, and he makes more sacrifices. So check this out. This gets real crazy here. Look at 60. Now the sacrifices, you just get, it's just so out of hand here. Okay? God's loving it. Verse 60, that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God, and that there is none else. Catch that? You know who said that, right? Who said that? Solomon said that. Let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. And the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered unto the Lord, two and twenty thousand oxen, and an hundred and twenty thousand sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. Is that my mic just cut out? I can't tell. Turn me up. Turn me up in the headphones. Check, check. Okay. Forgive me. All right. Mighty duck this out. Make sure. 
Teamwork, please. Um, so, that's a lot of sacrifices. And the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. They had separated the temple as a holy place. They'd separated it. It had been separated. The picture is, you've been separated. You've been dedicated. You've been consumed. There is no room inside there for other gods. No room. This was a holy place. But listen to me. It it was defrauded. It was defrauded. The worship in Israel became divided in a worse way than it had ever been. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 6. Turn there. This is super sad. After all that, you know. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon, and likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. See, you, just like Israel, can be defrauded by compromising your worship. All it takes is for you to justify a little sin. All it takes is for you to invite just a little strange God here and there. All it takes is just a little peer pressure. You know, his strange wives. I mean, they were hot. What do you do? Bridget like that. She loves me. (laughs) You know, what do you do? And just like that, you can divide your worship. Key point. Holiness is refusing to have a divided worship. Refusing. Determining in your heart and in your mind. When I say refuse, I mean a heart decision and a head decision. Fearlessly refusing to have a divided worship. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15 says, And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And listen, listen to me. And touch not the unclean thing. Don't even touch it. You know you can't. You know you can't. Because if you do, you know what happens next. You know what happens next. Don't even come into temptation. Don't even come into the realm of possibility. Don't even play with the idea. And he says, 
Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now listen to me. What are we getting here? What are we getting? Okay, we went to the tower. We went to the plain of Shinar. Now here we are in the high places. What do we learn from the high places? If we are going to live holy lives, then we have to resist having dueling authorities. We must be resolved to honor and serve God only. Any idol has the potential of inviting sin. Any one of them. You've got them. You've got them. You've seen them and you've touched them. You know what they are. Person, place, or thing. Name it in your head. Don't even touch it. Don't even touch it. Don't even come in into its space. Don't even refuse to dwell with it. Put it out. So what do we learn from the high places? Listen to me. There is no room in our faith for more than one God. There is no room in our faith for more than one God. Jesus Christ is it. He is the one. Now you tell me, what other God died for your sins? I mean, let's just be logical about it. Let's tie a little bit of our emotion to this idea. There is one God that died for you. There is one God who gave up his life with your name in his mind. There is only one God who knows how many tears you've shed. There is only one God who has the number of hairs on your head at any given moment numbered. I mean, the longer I get, the harder I make that for, the longer my hair gets, the harder I make that for God. I feel like I'm shedding constantly. Mm. <coughs> it's gross. <coughs> we don't all have such exquisite body hair, Eric. Look at this. Well trimmed. Did you go to the barber before you came? No. No. <laughs> um... No, I mean, what other, what other gods like that? Okay, so you're going to bastardize your faith by inviting in dueling authorities? You're going to invite some of those weak... You know, here's the thing about false idols. I don't know how much you know about false idols. False idols are things that you create to serve you. Yep. The oldest piece of artwork that we... Every art history class starts the same way, doesn't it? Doesn't it, guys? You guys know this. What's the... Any of the antiquities start with the same piece of artwork. What's the oldest thing? What? I'm going to get this wrong. <laughs> no, you're not. You work for an art school. <laughs> the Venus of Villendorf. Yeah, you are going to say that? Good, good. <laughs> the Venus of Villendorf. The Venus of Villendorf can spit in the palm of your hand. It's an idol. It's a false idol. And as far as we know, it got passed around a village so that people could pray to it. It was a fertility god. Okay? Passed around. All the women who wanted to get pregnant, they'd rub it, they'd touch it, and look like a little pregnant lady. That's what it looks like. Okay? All right, now listen to me. They made that thing to serve them. But little did they know that they served it. See, false gods, they swallow you up. They imprison you. They enslave you. 
and they spoil you. They spoil you. And just like that tiny little Venus of Willendorf, you've got little idols that you keep in your back pocket. Things and ideas, concepts and people that you worship. And I'm telling you, there's no room in our faith for more than one God. Place number three. The last and final place on our journey. The rooftop. Uh-oh. Some of you know where this is going. The rooftop. The rooftop is the place of secret indulgence. 2 Samuel chapter 11. <clears throat> Things were good for David. Okay, Things were real good. You know, all of that business of 1 Samuel had passed. You know, he's in the throne. Uh, the issues with, um, you know, uh, Saul's son trying to claim the throne, those things had passed. And really, things were looking pretty good for him. Verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 11, And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel... And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. So this was the season when kings should be at battle. But it says that David sent Joab, his right-hand man, into battle, and David tarried still at Jerusalem. So let's first address the fact that David was left alone and vulnerable for temptation. See, his right-hand man wasn't around. His friends were nowhere to be seen. It was just David alone in his own temptation. See, listen to me. Places of isolation. This is an important point. Get this down. Places of isolation. Listen to me. Physical, emotional, and intellectual places of isolation will always leave you vulnerable to temptation. Always. Adam and Eve. In the garden. Adam's nowhere to be found. Huh, that's interesting. Eve. Eve is by herself. Susceptible, vulnerable to the temptation. See, for many of us, the sins that we are burdened with would be taken care of if we were simply accountable. The sins would take care of themselves if you were simply accountable. Like if we were actually willing to let people hold us to a higher standard. See, many of us pretend to have true accountability, but we remain guarded. You know, we keep emotionally distant. We're physically, we're at Bible study. You know Bible study things. We're there. We're not actually vulnerable with any of the people in our Bible study. We don't let them close to our heart. And so we pretend to be accountable. We check that box off discipleship, fellowship. Check. Got that one taken care of. We don't go to our friends. Listen to me. Here's the, here's the thing. This is what a lot of you guys do. You only go to your friends after you fall. Isn't that funny? Isn't that interesting? You feel bad about it. And so you go to your friends. Because listen, they'll... they'll oh, it's okay. I'm sorry that you, you fell down again. I'm sorry that you fell to that temptation. So you go to your friends after you fall 
How many of you go to your friends before you fall? How many of you go to your friends before you mess up? See, if you did that, then you would have to not mess up. Yeah. It meets some sort of strange comfort that you, that you desire. It brings you some form of security. And then, guess what? Then it lets you down. Then it lets you down. You, th- you think it's a great idea. You indulge it because that's what you're used to doing. That's the way you usually comfort yourself. That's the way you usually make yourself feel better when you're down. And then you feel like crap the next day the next hour, and then you choose to go to your friend for accountability. That's backwards. There's no accountability in that. What you're looking for is attention. That's wicked. You don't have any plans on changing yourself. Don't lie to yourself. Don't do that to your accountability partners. See, accountability doesn't exist for the sake of getting attention or relieving your conscience. Accountability exists to keep your lifestyle holy. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. We got that so twisted. Some of us act like Faithful are the wounds of our sin. And we're willing to indulge the the wounds of our sin. We're willing to indulge that. Because we, somewhere in ourself, we say that that's good. No, listen, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So your friend came at you. And you didn't feel great about it. And you felt convicted. That's what it's about. Some of us need to buck up. Mm. Get tougher skin. We want to get cut. Huh? (laughs) I need it in my life. I need my friend to take the sword of of God's word, the double-edged sword, which actually, if you study it, the double-edged sword is more like a precision tool, like a surgical tool. It cuts away our flesh from our spirit. And our friends want to apply those types of wounds to us for our betterment. But we don't like that. So we think accountability is about getting attention after we've fallen. Making us feel better. Getting a little bit of coddling. We're spoiled brats. Who would rather live unholy lives and still be in community. than to receive the wounds of our friend and let go of our unholy lives. Key point. Holiness is refusing to be alone in times of temptation. Holiness is refusing to be alone in times of temptation. Next. David was supposed to be in battle. Oh yeah, that little fact. 
It was his responsibility to be at war, leading the charge. That's what he was supposed to be doing. It says, And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle. You guys familiar with the old saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop? Mm, It's true. And in fact, it's a biblical idea. Proverbs 24, verse 33 says, Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that uh, traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. And take a little rest over here. And then your poverty comes. And then you're stricken. See, what we're supposed to be doing is we're supposed to be engaging in battle. You know, so often in ministry, I meet with men, uh, young men and, and, and young women who have a counseling issue. And it's usually some sort of unholy living. They have some sort of struggle, some sort of temptation. And I love having these meetings. Okay? And if you have troubles and you have struggles... You bring them to me because I want to help counsel you. Bring them to your Bible study leader. That's what these people are for, is to support you and to hold you accountable. But so many times, people come to me with their struggles. And you know what? I look at their lives, I assess the situation, and what I discover is, if they were just involved in ministry, and doing the will of God, and purposed in the mission and in the battle then they wouldn't be preoccupied with all of these little temptations. These things that consume their mind. They sit in those dark places, in isolated places. And if they would just put their hand in the plow and be a part of the work, then all of those little things that are bothering them, those little temptations, they would kind of just fade away. You've got to busy yourself with the ministry. You know, the the funny thing is the intimacy itself, you know, intimacy with Jesus Christ, it begets work, not idleness. You know why people don't work in the mission? It's because they don't know Jesus. They don't practice intimacy with Christ. Because if they did, they'd want to work for Him. So if you're idle, to me, the first thing that comes to my mind is, oh, this person doesn't have a daily walk with Jesus Christ. This person doesn't have an intimate relationship with Christ and His Word. And so they're idle. Because if if you knew Christ and you had a relationship with Him, then you would want to work for that man. Wouldn't you? He worked for you. You know, if you have tons of free time on your hands, then you are setting yourself up to fulfill the lusts of your flesh rather than fulfill the word of God. If you've got plenty of time for just, you know, kicking it, I'm telling you, you're setting yourself up. It's only a matter of time until your old sins begin to swallow you up. When people practice taking their eyes off themselves and put them on obeying God's mission, then it begins to rewrite their motivations. Doesn't it? Key point. Holiness is refusing to be distracted from the mission.
Holiness is refusing to be distracted from the mission. You know, God can and will use you if you choose to obey Him. And I'm telling you, that brings way more reward and satisfaction and blessing and peace and joy than anything else, knowing that God can use even filthy old you. There's nothing better than that. There's no greater joy. The thing that you think brings you joy, it's not bringing you joy. It's a false God that's trying to convince you that it's bringing you joy. And your satisfaction in that thing won't last, and you will burn out, and your life will suck. Period. Know Jesus and know his mission. Commit yourself to him, and he will use you. And there's nothing better than that. Now listen to me. Another thing. Verse 2, And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. What time was it? Evening tide. It was nighttime. A time of darkness and a time of sleep. You know, you guys know Mitch Medlin? Hey, by the way, I told you this this is long. I mean, if your butt cheeks hurt, just stand up. Clench them a little bit. (laughs) Get the feeling back. I'm, I'm headed in the right direction, guys. Okay. You ready? I'm, this is the word. Okay, let me start with an example, though. So you guys know Mitch Medlin, the crazy old guy who's like my dad, right? So when I was a teenager, I started hanging around their house a lot because I needed believers in my life, and he was an example to me. Okay? As crazy as he is, he was an example to my life because he was bent towards the mission. You understand? I had never seen that before in people. They were bent towards the mission. Christianity wasn't a thing. It was a vocation. Anyway, so Mitch used to say this thing all the time about about nighttime. Because, you know, we were teenagers, Joe and I. And we had friends. And we liked to go out on the weekends. Okay? Just leave it at that. We liked to go out on the weekends. And we would go and we would hang out. We'd go to people's houses, whatever. You know what teenagers do. Okay, right? And he used to always give us a hard time and tell us that we were putting ourselves at risk when we stayed out late on Friday nights. And he used to say, ain't nothing good happening at night. That's what he used to say. Ain't nothing good happening at night. He's like, nighttime is a time for sin. And you know what? We used to think he was crazy. Because he is. (laughs) But I'm telling you right now, he was right. You don't have to like it. You don't have to like it. Job 36.20 Desire not the night when people are cut off in their place. Hmm. Proverbs 7.9 says, In the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night, and behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot and subtle of heart. Job 24, 13. They are of those that rebel against the light. They know not the ways thereof, nor abide in the paths thereof. The murderer rising with the light killeth the poor and needy, and in the night is as a thief. The eye also of the adulterer waiteth for the twilight, saying, No eye shall see me, and disguiseth his face. Nighttime is a time for temptation. And some of y'all are still going out at night and going to places you ought not be. 
as though you are 16 years old, going out, hanging out with your friends. <coughs> I'm telling you right now, I get it, you're young, and so fellowship, that can happen till late at night, and no one's telling you, I'm not being a legalist, I'm not telling you good things can't happen at night. Christianity is happening at night, spiritually, right? Our faith is happening at night. We are living in darkness, you understand? And we are lights in the darkness. I get it, okay, I get it. But very, very practically, listen to me. There are principles in Scripture that tell us that those are the times of temptation. And some of you go out and you tempt temptation. And this is my key point. Here we go. Holiness, listen to me. Holiness, this is the significance, is avoiding times and places that invite temptation. That could be your bedroom. It doesn't have to be the club. It doesn't have to be the pool hall. That could be your bedroom. Listen to me. Holiness is avoiding times and places that invite temptation. So what does that mean for you? Next, on the rooftop, here we go. And from the roof, he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Okay, now listen to me. David was indulging himself instead of shunning sin. So listen, listen to me. He's on the rooftop. He sees the woman. He has an option. Go back to bed or look some more. He chose look some more. You know, the difference between David's temptation with Bathsheba and Joseph's temptation with Potiphar's wife is, A, Joseph had already determined that he wouldn't entertain sin. So before he ever fell into the presence of Potiphar's wife, before they ever accidentally came into isolation together, they were alone in a room together. Okay? She was beautiful. She had a lot of power. She wanted to have sex with him. Okay? He had already determined in his heart that he would not entertain sin. 2 Corinthians 10 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You don't have to entertain thoughts that are vile. You don't have to do that. You have the capacity to say no. Now you have may, maybe have trained yourself a million times to say yes, but today you'll say no. And that makes tomorrow saying no easier. Do you understand me? If you've got to retrain yourself, cool. We've all got patience for that. But be training yourself to say no to temptation. Be training yourself to do it. The other thing, B, Joseph had already determined that he would flee sin at all costs. He had already determined he would flee sin at all costs. Okay, what does that mean? 
Okay, you remember the story? Joseph, he wasn't like he wasn't like David. David's up there, he's like, mmm, mmm, mmm. <laughs> and Joseph's like, mm mmm. <laughs> he had already determined that he would flee sin at all costs. What did it cost him? Do you remember? What did it cost him? Accusations, prison time, no good. It's a huge thing to sacrifice. If he would have gone along and played along with, with Potiphar's wife, sin may have found him out, but maybe she would have been quiet. Maybe. Maybe Satan would have protected him. Romans thirteen fourteen says, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Okay, what does this mean? You don't get to, to carve out little places in your life and in your mind for sin. No, you turn the other direction and you run from it. You run from it. And you've already determined in your mind that when the temptation comes, I'm going the other way. It ain't worth it. It ain't worth it. I'm not going to be here right now. I'm not going to think that right now. I'm calling a friend. Nope. Not thinking that. Not doing that. Not going there. I don't care how enticing it is to go there. Not going there. You've determined that you're not going to entertain sin. And when sin comes knocking at your door, you don't answer. You know, Sam says this thing, and it's, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful illustration. I've used it a lot over time. But he says, because uh, he's a farm boy, you know. He says, like, a, a, a bird could come into your barn. Now, I think actually he stole this, because I heard someone else use this illustration recently. And I'm wondering if this is a more famous illustration than I realize. I, I always just attribute it to Sam. But <clears throat> a bird might come into the barn, okay? But you don't have to let it build a nest. You're not going to avoid temp tempting thoughts are going to enter your mind. You don't have to let them preoccupy you. You don't, let them you don't have to let them set up house in your mind and in your body. Key point. Holiness is avoiding prolonged temptation. Are you hearing me? I know. Look, look. You're hungry. Your butt hurts. I get it. I'm killing Bridget. <laughs> it was funny, wasn't it? I'm working on it. <laughs> Holiness is avoiding prolonged temptation. The temptation comes, you don't let it rest with you. You avoid it. You move on. Verse 4, And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her. For she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house, and the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. Key point. Giving in to unholy living is accepting God's consequences. Giving in to unholy living is accepting God's consequences. You don't get to act blindsided when your sin catches up with you. God desires you to live holy, so he instructs 
holiness through his chastisement. That's how he does it. He's got a rod of correction and he ain't afraid to use it. And if he's got to teach you that way, he will. And you ought not be surprised by it. If you want to play with fire, God will let you get burned. See, not only will there be consequences to sin, but the greatest consequence is that sin refuses God's hand of blessing in your life. Sin in your life. See, the worst part isn't the consequence. The worst part is that your sin says, no God, I don't, I don't want your blessing. I don't want to be used. I'd rather be imprisoned to my sin. I know I'm holy. I, I know you've died for me, but not today. See, David's kingdom was never quite the same after this. God wanted to use him, and he threw all that away. What about you? Are you refusing God's ability to use you through prolonged, besetting sins that you entertain? See, if we're going to live holy lives, then we cannot make provision for the flesh. We must be resolved to honor and serve God even in the quiet place and the moments of temptation. We've got to be. There's no room for your pornography addiction. Not in the kingdom of God. There is no room for your gossip and backbiting and your ill temper. There's no room for it. You keep coming back to anger. Why? Why? There's no room for that. There's no room for us to, to give honor to wickedness. There's no room for it. Not in the Holy of Holies. We have to be resolved to honor and serve God even in the quiet place and moments of temptation. What did we learn from the rooftop? Without accountability, we're vulnerable. Without accountability, we're vulnerable. Without a mission, we're going to be selfish. If it's not God's vocation, it's our own. If we're not going to work for the Lord, we'll figure out something to do. We must avoid times and places of temptation. We've got to avoid them. Get away from them. You know what they are. You know where they are. Don't go there. Avoid them. We must flee from sin. We must flee from sin. And finally, we must recognize sin impedes God's work in our lives and invites consequences. The outcomes are no good. I mean, for the person who lives and is characterized by their sin, the Bible promises destruction for them. Maybe not in the life to come, but in the life present. Your life's going to suck. I mean, David's did. It went from blessing to aggravation. Nothing was ever the same. Nothing was ever the same for him. So in conclusion, A, agree with God that sin no longer has power over you. Agree with God that sin no longer has power over you. Romans 6 says, knowing this, 
that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. That he, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Are you dead? Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto, unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those who are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. B. Or two. Do not provide your flesh with opportunities to sin. Don't do it. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Do not make provisions for flesh for your flesh. Do not make provisions. I mean, that looks like so many different things. Oh man, don't buy that thing. Don't buy that. You know you're going to get in trouble? Don't buy that car. Don't go into that debt. You know you're going to get all fleshly? Don't go out to that place. I know, I know that it's your friends, but look what time it is. And think about where you're going. You don't need to go there. You don't need to do that thing. You don't need to Google that. You don't need to Google that. In fact, why don't you get covenant eyes on there? So that anytime you look at anything like that, guess uh, Pastor Briscoe gets an email. And nobody wants their pastor knowing what they look looking at on online. No one wants that. You know what? There are some faithful men in this ministry who've chosen that very thing. And if they were to look at something, guess who would get notified? Guess who's not looking at stuff that they shouldn't be looking at? Make no provision for the flesh. Do not allow sinful thoughts to control your mind. Second Corinthians chapter ten, verse three: For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down your... Imagination is not good in in the Bible. It's not good. The things that you come up with and conceive, they ain't good. I know that. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So the wrong places. Yeah? There are wrong places. And for the New Testament believer, some of them are literally wrong places. But there's wrong places in your mind. There's wrong places in your heart. And we ought to be dead. We ought to be yielded. And it is time to make decisions accordingly. We are going to close. I'm going to pray. And as we do that, I want you to make eye contact with a person, one person, maybe two if you need it, and you are going to go, and you're going to go somewhere in this building, and you are going to pray with them. And listen to me, friend. You're going to invite true accountability, and you are going to confess to them sins that you're holding on to. It's time for that, isn't it? If your life is supposed to be everything that it's supposed to be, if the ministry of Kaya is going to take that hill, then we cannot have Soldiers sloughing off their responsibility to be holy before a living God. 
It is time to address these issues and to address them the right, the right way. Let's make holy lives by yielding and surrendering to the mighty God. So as I pray, you're going to make eye contact with people. And then as the prayer concludes, you're going to go find a place to pray. We don't get to go into that room. At all. We cannot use it. Are they patrolling that room? or You can go outside, I guess, if you need to. Not on the deck. Okay. Not on the deck? Out there. Oh, that, that already, I know. I, I, it's fine. Okay. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, <clears throat> well, we know, we know that many of us, we, we entertain sin. And, and you know, the, the truth is, a lot of us just struggle with, like, we just sin. We just, sometimes we're angry. Sometimes we don't talk the way we should. Um, but we need forgiveness for those things. But certainly, Lord, there are things for some of us that are just besetting. They seem to rule over us. They seem to imprison us and invite sustained wickedness in our life. And we know that that it gets in the way of you using us. And it gets in the way of joy and peace and rest and all the things that you want for us to have. And we just keep choosing darkness. And Lord, those things need to be dealt with. They're not hopeless situations. These aren't hopeless situations. God, you've given us a prescription for yielding to you. And so, God, we ask for your help, and we pray that this season, this time of prayer, will be beneficial, will be profitable. Lord, we need to get accountable. We need to confess sin. And, Lord, we need those fervent prayers of the righteous to avail much in our lives. Help us, God, to determine in our heart and our mind that we will not sin against you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, go pray.